from Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show. I would say we really need a message that now more than ever, we need to really be vigilant because it's more dangerous now, whether it's because the virus is more virulent because of the new strain, but certainly because of the density of the virus, because there's so many people in the community that have it. When it first came out, you had a, maybe a one in a 20,000 chance of getting it. Now they say one in 16 people that you come in contact with has COVID. That was Dr. Stephen Tabak on Medicine We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. So first, our host, the Quadruple Board Certified Doctor of Internal Medicine, Pulmonary Disease, Critical Care, and Neurocritical Care, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How are you, Steve? I'm doing okay. Good to see you, Bill. We have one of our favorite experts returning to us today, Dr. Howard J. Fullman. He is board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology, and Howard served a multi-decade tenure at Kaiser Permanente as partner, board member, president of the executive committee, chief of staff, and chair of the quality committee. He has supervised over 4,300 staff and over 500 doctors. Howard is now Senior Operating Advisor at Atlantic Street Capital for their medically focused investments. Dr. Howard Fullman, nice to have you back. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Hi, Stephen. Hey, good to see you. Hey, Steve. What's it like in the ICU with the COVID patients? How many do you have and how's it going? Well, it's been very rough at my hospital. The surge has hit us really hard. We actually, we had a mini surge back in May when everybody else seemed to be really struggling, but this time it has hit us really hard. We have about 150 plus COVID patients in our hospital and about 20% of those are in the intensive care unit. And those that are in the intensive care unit, they are all on high flow oxygen or intubated. So they're all very, very sick. And, and Howard, what do you hear about Kaiser? How are they holding up in all this? You know, I, I'm just very proud of everybody. Incredible courage by the patients and their families, what they're going through, the doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, all the staff, level of dedication, I think, of the healthcare professionals is uh, just miraculous. People are tired. You know, I was there the other day doing by the days worth of procedures. And just in what I do, which is way less difficult than being in the ICU for a 12-hour shift, they're just wearing an N95 mask and a shield and all the PPE being more cautious than ever and trying to make sure that the patients can get in and out so that they're not in the medical center one minute more than is necessary, et cetera, et cetera. It just makes the practice of medicine, which is already something that's very challenging, even more challenging. But my heart goes out to the patients there. And, and that's not just the COVID patients. Uh, it's anyone who needs services in the hospital is having a more difficult time than usual. And it's not easy being a patient under normal circumstances, let alone under these circumstances. I'm, I'm sure. There are all kinds of treatments that have changed since our last conversation. I mean, the remdesivir and steroids and a number of other treatments that you guys have optimized a bad situation. What's working the best these days, Dr. Steve? In actuality, the one medication that really has shown to decrease mortality out of everything that we have is Decadron, an age-old medication, a steroid that's used to decrease swelling and decrease inflammation in the body. Thus far, is the only medication that we're using that actually has been proven to d diminish what they call 28-day mortality. 
We do give remdesivir because there has been shown that there's been some benefit in terms of shortening the course of the disease. And so it's still part of our protocol. And so everybody who is coming in is getting coverage for what we call community-acquired pneumonia in case they have a bacteria on top of COVID. So they're getting the usual medications for that, which is usually azithromycin and something called ceftriaxone. But the standard therapy provided you have good kidney function and that you're not too overwhelmingly sick is the decadron and remdesivir. But it is the decadron that by far has been shown to be very effective. I do believe for those people who are not terribly ill, that are just starting to show signs and symptoms of COVID that have various comorbidities, considerably overweight, they have diabetes, the monoclonal antibody that is given in an infusion, I believe has also been a game changer, although I've not seen formal data in that way. But those are the big three medications that we give. I mean, you've got to look at what's going on here in the US and it's got to frustrate both of you knowing how many people are breaking the advice. Maybe you don't want to call them rules because somehow those of us in the US don't like those things called rules. Frankly, I've seen a bunch of parties go on in my town. There have been a bunch of weekend weddings and dancing and what have you. And it's almost like, what are you supposed to do as a healthcare organization to get the message across? I can't imagine what would happen to Dr. Steve here if there was a surge on top of this surge. That's an important point. And I think all of us in the healthcare professions, every day. I do want to start again by saying lots and lots of people are doing their level best to comply with things. And I feel really badly for people who don't have the luxury to be at home. They have essential workers, people who are living in very congested areas, trying to do the very best they can in difficult circumstances. So that's important to make sure we acknowledge the hard work, difficult circumstances that lots of people are living under. Not everybody is violating these guidelines, but there are people who are either inadvertently or in some cases intentionally violating these rules. At the time of this recording, we haven't really felt the COVID bump from last year's holiday season, which of course leads to a surge on top of a surge. And that's what we're bracing ourselves for currently. I think this is a doctoral thesis in the making, understanding certainly what Howard was saying, the essential workers, those people you know, who don't have the luxury of not going to work because otherwise the family won't have food to eat. Those issues are completely understandable, forgivable, but I think there is a social study in the making of those people who are indignant about walking around wearing a mask or those people who are traveling or having parties needlessly. I'm sure there is a a whole psychological study that we can probably take years of research to try to figure out what it is about human nature that lends itself to that type of behavior. I do find it very frustrating to see that. And we have, you know, our civil liberties. And I think for whatever reason, civil liberties have been kind of misrepresented and mislabeled because your civil liberties are supposed to end when you're infringing on somebody else's. I do believe in this country, we used to have the general ethic of caring for your neighbor, taking care of each other. And on some level, not completely, but on some level, that has degenerated into a me generation that's going to do what's good for them at all costs. I know of a number of people who were actually lightly affected by the virus initially, but they've turned into what you're calling long haulers. Right. So talk about that a little bit. What are you seeing there? Well, I mean, people who you know, got over COVID, people who had very mild symptoms, as you're describing, but virtually we've been seeing patients for the past year 
and patients complaining of ongoing cough, shortness of breath, not able to go back to work because they cannot perform anything other than minimal exertion without severe shortness of breath, chronic headaches, chronic nausea, the gamut. Is that strictly for older people or is that for... No, there's a lot of young people. In fact, I would say just as many young as old are suffering with long-term symptoms. Now, eventually, I do believe the younger you are, the better chance you are of having a complete recovery and minimization or eradication of these symptoms. But it's months now, and they're still struggling with it. Things that could have been avoided in probably 50% of them had everybody really been adhering to social distancing and wearing a mask. Certainly those who are capable of doing so, had they really adhered to it, there would have been so many less deaths and so much less disability as a result. Howard, I wonder if we could bring you in and talk about how does a surge work and a surge on a surge? For example, you guys were just very nice and you were mentioning the people who absolutely must go to work and they're essential workers and they're exposed that way. And of course, uh, we feel terrible for them. But prior to last Thanksgiving, California was averaging about 100 deaths a day. A few weeks after last Thanksgiving, we bumped to an average of over 500 deaths a day. Forget about how much testing we were doing or how many people were infected. Just the death rate went up fivefold. Who knows what February will bring after the effect of the last holiday season. So talk to us a little about what does this mean, a surge, and how does this work, and how should we think about it as listeners to this show? Good question. Well, first of all, I mean, there's to me an irony that California has had some of the most stringent restrictions, not just in the last few weeks, but over the last six months, by and large, we've been ahead of most of the country and how much we've limited people from being able to gather and all the rest. And yet we're in the worst predicament. So it you know, begs the question, well, why do we have such a surge? What's the root causes? You know, some of it may be still, believe it or not, ignorance. People don't really understand it, know about it. Some people are in denial. Some people don't care. There's a concept called social norms, which basically means we take our cues from the people around us. And if the people around us are taking this seriously, then we're likely to take it seriously. If the people around us are being flippant about it and disregard things, then that's how we're likely to be. We basically move as a group. That's what social norms is about. The Harvard Business Review did an article on the power of using social norms in business and getting people to think collectively in a certain way. We need to be thinking about that right now. So I think going to your question, how does a surge keep happening? I think it results from human frailty and ongoing behaviors that are dismissive of the current realities. It's getting worse and people hear about it and they see it on television. They read about it on the news. They see it on the internet. They hear from their neighbors. They hear from the doctors, but not everybody changes their behavior. The other thing that works against them, I think, is that because there's a vaccine coming, there's this false sense of security that, okay, it's about ready to go away. So we can go out and do whatever we want to do, not realizing that until you're vaccinated, you're not protected. And so people are out there kind of relaxing their stance very prematurely. Is it possible that this surge, could it have anything to do with the UK mutation of coronavirus? Do we test everybody to find out which version of COVID they have? No, I think the, even, even on an epidemiologic basis, there's been very little testing of the genotypes of the virus. We don't even know how much we have it in a general sense, let alone an individual having it. And it does seem like at least the mutation from the UK is more contagious. That may have something to do with it. How would it become more contagious? How does that work? When there's a viral infection, there are factors that the virus themselves have that contribute to a so-called virulence. 
and there are viral factors, and then there are the quote unquote the host factors, meaning the factors in the, in the human. And the virus can change over time, and that those changes can allow the virus to attach more readily to certain parts of the human anatomy. It can allow it to create more copies to be made of the virus per unit time. And can it affect what those units do in the body themselves in terms of the immunologic systems overreacting to the the virus. So all of these things can change with subtle changes in the virus. But I think that the virus from the UK seems to be more contagious as a result of the mutation. And so relatively more people can get infected from the first person who got the infection. Well, let's talk about the pace of the administering of the vaccine, how fast it's getting distributed. In just a minute, we'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but drink. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second Cats device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Okay, we're back with Dr. Howard Fullman and of course, Dr. Stephen Tabak. So I've got to ask you guys, what's going on with the distribution of these vaccines It seems like right now it's sort of hospital-oriented in its distribution. I thought that we were going to end up going to GNC and Walgreens and getting a fast deployment of the vaccine. What's going on right now? The analogy I would give to you is when you're on the airplane and they say that if the oxygen mask comes down, put the mask on yourself first and then put it on your child. And so first and foremost, if your caregivers get sick with COVID and they're unable to take care of those who are sick, far more people will suffer and die. So you need to take care of your frontline personnel first. And then the next step is to go in a tiered fashion, those at highest risk, be it the elderly or those with multiple comorbidities, because you can't distribute 300 million doses overnight. So as it becomes available, it needs to be distributed in a tiered and stratified fashion. Where do you see the bottleneck right now? Is it the transportation, Howard, that is causing a a slowdown, or is it that there's no one there to receive it and administer a shot to a patient? It's been a little bit of everything. I think the distribution aspect has been very challenging because, as I said, you can't just deliver this to every doctor's office or even every small pharmacy because they don't have the facilities, they don't have the freezing capability that's required to be down at negative 90 degrees. But I'm certain, to some extent, there have been some personnel issues and all the rest. I think it's going to speed up quite a bit. I hope that we'll get into the circumstance where, if anything, we're running a little behind on the supply of the vaccine. Right now, we have an abundance of vaccine compared to the number of people that we've gotten vaccinated. So you're absolutely right, Bill. It's not where it needs to be. How are we doing getting the vaccine into nursing homes? Not so well so far. And I think, again, that relates to we got the vaccine out to the states, but we didn't figure out so quickly how to get them from the centralized state locations 
out to the places where they needed to go. It was relatively easy to get at the hospitals because there's not that many hospitals, but there are hundreds and hundreds of nursing homes and it's much more decentralized. In fairness to, the, to those who are in charge of distribution, this has gone very fast. And I think it's going to ramp up and I think this is going to happen faster now. I think there's a lot of pressure being put on those responsible for it. But admittedly, things are going more slowly than anyone had anticipated and certainly slower than what was promised at the beginning of the distribution. One of the, I think, important issues about vaccinating the healthcare workers first is there is, for whatever reason, a vaccine phobia in this country. And there's so many people who are anti-vaccines or afraid of the effects of the vaccine that how do you instill confidence in the population if your healthcare workers have not received the vaccine themselves? And I would rather be the guinea pig for the general public. Obviously, this has gone through clinical trials of 30,000 people, but who knows what other side effects may come about. Give it to your healthcare workers, show the public that we are taking it just as you are, set the example, and we wouldn't take it ourselves if we didn't think it was safe. Talk is cheap, but walk your talk and show that you're willing to roll up your sleeve. I think it's an important statement for the public to see that. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. Of course, explain to me how a vaccine works, especially this one. You just got a shot the other day, Howard. So what's happening in your body? Well, I hope what's happened is I have a lot of antibodies circulating against the messenger RNA. <laughs> I think what happens is that a bit of inactivated messenger RNA is being transmitted to my body. And antibodies are being made based upon that messenger RNA. And those antibodies that I'm making will oppose the spike protein. That is the red thing that everybody notices on all of the pictures of coronavirus. And that red antenna that the virus has all around it is how the virus attaches to the cells in my nasal cavity and in my throat. And if I make enough antibody as a result of that vaccine, then it will inactivate the spike protein and make it incapable of binding and attaching itself to my cells and therefore cannot cause an infection in my body. And that's, in fact, what has been shown in the studies. The studies that were done on these two vaccines that are based on messenger RNA showed this dramatic reduction in the number of people getting sick by 95%, a tremendous reduction in the number of people who got very sick. That's, I think, as important, if not even more so. And that a lot of antibodies were being made to the spike protein as a result of the host, the human who got the shot, making antibodies to, as a result of that messenger RNA. It's a gradual process. Uh, you're probably developing some antibodies after 10 to 14 days with the first shot. But when you get the booster, the amount of antibodies and immunity goes up very sizably so that the booster adds, adds an awful lot to the protection. And by the way, you know, we think that most of this immunity is related to antibodies, but there are other effects on the immune system in addition to the production of antibodies that can provide even more protection against the virus that might even be longer lasting than the antibody protection itself. So there are many different levels where the person's body benefits from the shot that helps protect them in meaningful ways, hopefully for a significant amount of time to the virus. So if enough of us have a vaccine, like 70 or 80% of us, so the vaccine can't really infect as many people, then for the most part, you're not safer from the virus. You're just, the chances of you incurring or interacting with that virus gets lower if we have herd immunity. You're both, right? You're safer from the virus because you have immunity towards that virus. But if that virus now cannot spread, because less people are infected, 
That's what herd immunity does. The virus has nowhere to go. It's got to jump from host to host. And if it can't get into your body because your body repels it, it's got to go find a body that doesn't repel it where it can continue to replicate and survive. And if there's enough of us that have that immunity, either because we contracted it and are now cured or because we were vaccinated, if there's enough of us where, such that the virus cannot find another host, it basically goes away. Then let me add what's clear, what's clear from the trials, and this is what people I think should take with them to strongly consider having this vaccine. It's a very, these are two very effective vaccines. In the trials, what happened was there was a placebo group that got an inactive uh, inert solution versus those who got the actual vaccination. And out of 100 people who got sick, 95 of those people had gotten the placebo and five had gotten the vaccine, the active vaccine. That's a tremendous advantage. So just to have some perspective, what is the success rate of the flu vaccine? Changes every year. Has a lot to do with the virulence of the flu virus that comes around that year. But in general, the flu vaccine is at about the 50% level, roughly. It does a good job also of mitigating, meaning lessening the intensity of the infection if you get influenza but actually preventing it probably in a good year, 50, 60% in that range, I believe. So 95%, that's an extraordinarily effective vaccine for a virus. So if you guys were called by the Biden administration and they asked you to come help fix the rest of the year, what are some of the things you would recommend to them to try to get things in order? We did very well, I thought, in California during the first surge. And we had Dr. Fauci talking about flattening the curve. And I thought that certainly in Los Angeles, our mayor had done a really good job. Our governor had done a good job in terms of trying to strongly enforce, not really shutting down businesses, but putting them at bay until it was safe to reopen. I would have them try to figure out a way to kind of fuse the economics with the epidemiology so that we can still social distance, we can still somehow support our restaurants. But we sort of have lost our stance, I think, because of the, the lack of political fortitude to actually stick your neck out and say, we must social distance, we must stay at home, and we need to really enforce that as strongly as we can. I think, again, prevention is, is the name of the game. And, and you have to put out there the propaganda is not propaganda. I would say we really need a message that now more than ever, we need to really be vigilant because it's more dangerous now, whether it's because the virus is more virulent because of the new strain, but certainly because of the density of the virus, because there's so many people in the community that have it. When it first came out, you had a, maybe a one in a 20,000 chance of getting it. Now they say one in 16 people that you come in contact with has COVID. Whoa, seriously? Seriously. So now it's a much more dangerous time to be out and about. So just hang tough for another three months. And they're predicting maybe having 300 million vaccines out by March. If it's by May, so what? At least it's coming. We got to just hang tough. And that's got to be the message. And that's, that's what I would want to do is try to get that message across. I agree with all of that. I would just add a couple of things. First of all, there's still two basic categories of things we need people to do. The first is all the things that they can be doing to help lessen the chance that they give it to somebody or acquire it from somebody. So all of those things that Stephen mentioned and the hand washing and the masks and the social distancing, that's one category. 
And the second category is getting people to desire and to flock toward the vaccination. That both of those things have to be emphasized. They're both still important. Even if we're vaccin- as we're vaccinating more and more people, the social distancing and the mask wearing is still going to be very important for a while, even including for people who've been vaccinated. So you shouldn't lose sight of that. Both are going to be important for quite a while. It's going to take a multi-pronged approach to reach people on both of these categories. It's clear that having Dr. Tony Fauci talk about this has a positive influence on lots of people. He's He's an American hero, brilliant man. Everything he says is right. And a lot of people listen to him, but he's not the only person that people listen to. They listen to sports figures and celebrities and their BFF and their next door neighbor and their peers and their doctors. And we're going to have to have a multi-pronged concerted approach at every level, on the internet, on television, through the medical community, to get a certain message so that people start believing the importance of both of those categories of behaviors because we need both of them. And we're not going to reach everybody the same way. And so I'm hoping that the Biden administration is thinking about that because only having the medical authorities speak about it is not going to get us to the level of vaccination and adherence to the mask wearing that we need. It's a good start, but we need more. So I think it's going to take a lot of all of those things. And that's what I'm hoping the Biden administration is working on. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcast. The phone just rang again, and Biden is on the phone because your first answer, both of you, was so profound. And now he's asking you, what do we do to make sure this never happens again in our lifetime? Well, first of all, we have to believe it will likely happen again. So I think the first thing is not to put our head in the sand, but rather to acknowledge that it's a very globalized economy. There's been, until recently unprecedented levels of international travel. We're not one country, we're a world community. And what happens in one location is going to affect and spread easily to other locations. We got lucky with Ebola a few years ago. We only had, I think, several cases. We handled it very well, but we also got lucky. That could have been even more disastrous than this pandemic. Right, we got lucky with SARS and MERS, right? I mean, Same with SARS and MERS, and same with H1N1 by comparison. Right. First of all, I think we're going to need to study this and debrief this. I think we have to support the Center for Disease Control at a much higher level. We have to be very proactive and go through the different categories of things that we need to prepare for. Testing, PPE, international cooperation, detection, so you find things at an early level, planning, so we have scenarios in place that if another virus comes to the American shore or is about to come to the American shore, What 10 things should we do? Who knows what they need to do? What's everyone's role? Is the funding there? Is the equipment there? How do we monitor that we're doing all the things that we say that we're going to do? And we need to have a game plan for every potential kind of virus, the ones that are highly lethal, the ones that are highly contagious, the ones that are spread by respiratory, the ones that are spread by GI contact. All of these things could be a little bit different, but they share the need for resources 
and planning at the governmental level. This has to be done governmentally. And then secondly, there needs to be more, not less international cooperation. Uh, the World Health Organization is an important component of this. And we need to support, not back away from the World Health Organization. We need to help the World Health Organization be as effective as it can be. And we need to collaborate with the Centers for Disease Control or their equivalent in many, many other countries around the world. So that's just a start. What I'd like to see taking place, it has to be studied by people who are serious about this and understand it. And we'll take an objective look at what happened this time so that we learn from it and don't let this happen to us again. Right. Global standards and protocols that we all, you know, every country buys into and adheres to. We really need to, need to cooperate and really get organized in advance because this didn't have to happen. I mean, if had China recognized it early and, and if we all had a global shutdown strategy, this could have been arrested within the first couple of months. How do you suspect med schools will change their syllabus after this year we've just lived through? I'm hoping that there will be something in the syllabus in addition to COVID. <laughs> but I think there are some very important general themes that must be learned related to this pandemic. So I'll give you a few that are on my mind. One is, I'm not just worried about the COVID patients right now. I'm concerned with people with other serious medical illnesses who have a hard time getting into hospitals at the moment. Hospitals don't have a lot of excess beds throughout the country, certainly not here in Los Angeles County right now. And so we don't like to think that we would ever do rationing of medical care. We don't like to think about that in the United States. We like to think that we can do everything for everybody and we have limitless resources. Well, when there's a pandemic like this, that's not exactly the case. How do you make sure that you're minimizing any negative outcomes that might occur to those with other important illnesses during a pandemic? That's one thing I think that's going to have to be in medical school curriculum in the future. How do you triage people with other ailments when there's a pandemic that's overwhelming like this? That's one. Secondly, how do you make sure that we're taking great care of the patients and their families at the same time that we're preventing our professionals from getting ill and having psychological trauma too? That's a difficult balancing act. I think last time we spoke about how sad it's been that family members haven't been able to be with their loved ones and vice versa. That's a very, very horrible situation, especially if someone is dying. And yet we don't want COVID to be spread to anybody else. So how do we balance those things? And how do we make sure that there's still that tenderness and that great bedside matter and that, and that caring and concern for everybody involved because people are going through a lot of stresses and traumas right now. So those are the kind of things I think that I'd like to see in, in medical school curriculum. And then lastly, one of the positive consequences of the AIDS epidemic, and the AIDS epidemic was a really horrible epidemic as well, and it's not gone yet, but at least it's certainly much more controlled than it was at the beginning of the, of the AIDS era. But one of the nice things that came out of it was this amazing proliferation of antiviral therapies and other virologic research. Because prior to that, we didn't really have a lot of great treatments for viruses, really very few. And so now we have come so far from where we were just a mere 20, 25 years ago in terms of our understanding of virology and treatments of viruses. I believe that this pandemic is going to have a similar incredible acceleration in viral research because we need it, because there's a lot of viruses still out there that can harm us. Dr. Steve? You know, in terms of a curriculum, I, it would not shock me if you wind up having a pandemic specialist and having a, a whole aspect of the curriculum where there is a, a pandemic component to the curriculum for those people who are interested. And this will wane is the thing, because right now our, it's our focal point. 
COVID is our focal point. Fear of a future pandemic is a focal point. And who knows? We may have, God forbid, another pandemic five years from now. But how long has it been since our last one? You know, almost 100 years. So who knows the significance of intensive virology and the study of uh, pandemics? But I, I think because our technology is at a certain level, I think you will find it being a strong portion of the curriculum. But I do think with time, we will tend to forget and we'll realize that this isn't so important on a day-to-day basis once it goes away. And we'll get back to the more broad spectrum training for med schools. Do you suspect that both medical training and actually our practice will be permanently changed as far as telemedicine goes? You think that'll be more and more popular and be more part of our everyday life, pandemic or no pandemic? I do. You know, I think prior to the pandemic, there was a modest amount of telemedicine going on. It mostly was related to this trend, an important one, to try to create a healthcare system that's more convenient to the patients. And for certain kinds of services, especially if most of what was going to happen was a conversation between a healthcare professional and a patient, the concept of having to interrupt what someone is doing and close down their computer and go down an elevator and drive across town and wait for a doctor and see them. And then going back and doing the same thing for possibly 20 minutes of conversation when that all they had to do necessarily was get on the phone for 20 minutes and not have to waste all that time. That was getting to be something significant and some patients in particular really valued it. But this now became not just an important matter of convenience, it became a matter of safety, a way of trying to keep healthy people out of possibly a slightly unsafe environment and trying to minimize the spread of a very bad infection. And I think as a result of those two things in combination, more and more patients, and for that matter, more and more doctors have become familiar with this technique. And they, it may not be a panacea, it's not perfect, but for certain conditions, people are finding it to be very satisfactory, both doctors and patients. And I, I find it hard to believe that we'll move away from it. Hopefully, we're not going to need it for the same reason with the insane intensity, because right now, we would like to keep people out of healthcare facilities as much as possible. And it'd be nice if the only reason we're doing it is because this is something that people desire and want, as opposed to they need to have it done because of safety features. So in your estimation, are the drug companies cooperating with each other through this process, or has this been just a race to the top of the stock market? Well, it's probably a little bit of both. I do think one, I do want to credit the scientific community as a whole, because I think when it came to the actual genetic mapping of the virus, sharing that information, and this was across countries, you know, what was being shared between China and here and the sharing of what was going on in, in research labs. I think there was quite a lot of it and, and it continues to be. You know, the drug companies, I think on the one hand are very interested and doing the right thing because this is such an unprecedented situation that they know they need to come to the rescue. And I think they've done most of this that I think they've done quite well and shared some information and learnings and thought processes, especially when it came to some of their planning for how they would get the virus manufactured because it's not so easy to manufacture 100 million copies of the vaccine. On the other hand, they are for-profit entities and they try to protect their know-how and they have shareholders and they want to make sure they're profitable. And there's an enormous amount of money, both from the federal government and from the healthcare system itself, that is funding these efforts. And so they're obviously trying to maximize their profits. Well, I'd say probably a little bit of both, but in this case, the fact that they've got these effective vaccines out so quickly, I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. One of the one of the other groups that I can't help but talk about for a minute are the people who are 
the first responders and they drive ambulances and they are the paramedics and ambulances. It's got to be just a nightmarish situation for them. I'm sure you'd like to say something about what they're doing, but I have a question. In a place as small as the inside of an ambulance, how is it physically possible for a healthcare worker, a paramedic, to protect themselves from the guy who's full of virus that is lying on that table as they go to the hospital? Well, if you're wearing PPE, that's the whole point. I mean, because we are very close to our patients in the hospital. And so you can go in and out of a room provided that you're protected and provided you're not breaking that PPE protection, you are going to be safe and secure. I think the thing that is so laudable about the first responders is that by contrast in the hospital, we control our environment very well. Automatically, we know who's COVID positive, who isn't. We isolate them. We don our PPE ahead of time. When you are a first responder, and I was an ambulance attendant for a short while back when I was in college, you're walking into an environment and you can't control that environment. You try to get control, but there are people who can be combative. There are people who yelling, screaming, who are emotionally distraught. These are high-risk situations for an individual to be walking into a stranger's home, not knowing what collateral issues will be confronting them. The ambulance itself is the least of the risk. The risk is walking into a strange environment where you really cannot control what might be coming at you, things that you can't plan for. Clearly, I'm lucky because I get to sit and talk to you guys. And you're experiencing, and Steve is intensely experiencing this virus in his ICU with all of these patients and the overload of patients. And you're sitting here thanking the people who are part of your machine, which is noted and appreciated. I know that everybody who's listening to this wants to thank you guys for your message, your process, your forethought, and your compassion for the people around you, because there is no way you're paid enough to do this job. Dr. Howard Fullman, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Bill. And of course, Dr. Stephen Tabak. We can't even imagine what it was like for you today and yesterday and the day before and the month before that to deal with the surge at the hospital. Thank you for making time for this. And I think the message that you guys are giving is an important one. Howard, how can people follow you? Oh, that's very kind. So I'm every, every once in a while, I'll put out a tweet and that can be reached at, at Howard Fullman, MD. Thanks to our producer and editor, AJ Mosley. Audio mastering is by Steve Rickyberg. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. All that does is let you know when our next show is posted. We'll see you next time. Stay healthy. Thanks for joining us on Medicine. We're Still Practicing. See you next week, everybody. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.